This is Possibility Politics with Jeff Stein. The show where social, political, economic, spiritual, and philosophical discourse goes to live. We never give up the high moral ground, take no political divisioners, and fight until the bitterness ends. And now, here's your host, recovering hope addict and paid volunteer in the American experiment, Jeff Stein. You know, I I used to love being right. You know the feeling? That feeling of, uh, oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know it. Take that, man. I was right. I was right. Uh, and, And it's such a fasting human thing to want to be right. What is, what is the desire for rightness? It's basically relief for uncertainty about your self-worth. <laughs> it is a verification that you are right, valuable, raw, you know, something like that. It, it shows your worth, right? And so you, right? And so you uh, want to be right because you can go, that's right. I'm better. I'm good. I'm validated. And I don't care anymore and say, oh, sure, Jeff, really don't care about being right. No, 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 I, I, I do. And the reason I do is it's different. It's, I'm always right now. <laughs> you say, wow, you're cocky, dude. No, the, you are always right when you believe that love wins over fear, that kindness wins over cruelty, that you're always right when you believe in your fellow man or woman or transgender, you, you will always be right. When you see and expect that love wins in the end. And so you release and you relinquish your need to be right as an individual, to have some sort of possession of a fact that makes you in a greater hierarchy than others. And instead, you see the glory and the beauty and the grace of this world unfolding and say, "Ah, it always works out. And I knew it would. And so I'm right because I knew it would, even if... Uh, the circumstances or the particulars aren't important. And why do I say that? <laughs> because what have I been saying on this show? See, here's this little, here's my moment of, of self-worth and ego. I, I knew that the pendulum swing was going to result in an equal and opposite reaction back towards love, away from kind, from cruelty back to kindness, away from desperation back to inspiration, away from fear back to love. And of course, this pendulum swings back and forth. As the masters like to say, it's the wave, right? It's the up and down of the wave, and the the trough will never overcome the crest. The darkness will never smother the light. And that is true, and that was proven on Tuesday. <laughs> and not because Democrats won. It, it really isn't about which party won. I, I'm very much looking at both parties as an incredible work in process, progress. No surprise there, right? There's a lot of disarray. There's a lot of problems on both sides. But what did win on Tuesday was being for something instead of being against something. You say, well, wait a minute. No, no, it was all about Trump, but it was against Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, a, there was an against factor. Every subject is always two subjects, as one of my favorite authors like to say, meaning that every subject is what is wanted and the lack of what is wanted. You go into every situation saying, for instance, well, I want to get a job because I want more money and prosperity and then I can enjoy things, and I also don't want to go broke. It's always tampered with both. And the question is, which percentage of each are you focused on most? Are you focused more on, oh, God, I don't want to be broke. I don't want to be late. I don't want to suck. I don't want to fail. I don't want to this. Or are you focused more on, I got this. This is going to be great. This is going to be amazing. This is inspiring. I'm excited to do this. And so when I say what happened on Tuesday, 
It wasn't Democrats versus Republicans. I mean, that's how it played out in the, in the actual scorecard. But it was being more for something than more afraid of something. And especially on one of the biggest issues right now that I, you know, I've been watching since I was young is the gender <laughs> factor in our society. And here's an example of, of where I was right. If, for those who have been listening to the show, you'll remember that um, back after Trump was elected, I mentioned how there's this annual women's leadership conference. And I forgot the name. I apologize. And every year they train and do a conference uh, for women who are interested in running for office somewhere at any level. And there's a few like that. One of my uh, great friends, my partner, Erica uh, Ferriston, she does did Emerge, which is a California version. Actually, it's a national version, but it's a California version too, which specifically uh, helps women candidates have the tools and the knowledge and the contacts to run for office. Okay, so this annual conference usually had about 60 to 80 attendees every year. After Trump's electoral college victory, and of course I say it that way, <laughs> there were over 360 attendees, from 60 to 80 to 360. I think it was the Virginia Democratic Party chairman that said, uh, or chairwoman, I can't imagine that's bad, I was reading the quote, said, after Trump won, it began raining candidates. <laughs> this is where I say I was right. Not that I was right, but believing that there would be a not only equal and opposite reaction, but a bigger, more inspired reaction that would come from the fear that was drummed up and the frustration, the hatred. And, and we know this. It was Hillary versus Trump. And so everybody just felt, Bleh. and I'm sorry, Hillary fans, but there was a great deal of people who were excited about her, but these were the two most unpopular candidates ever. And so there was just, Bleh. and I knew because <laughs> You're always right when you believe that love and inspiration will always conquer. It did. Uh, that pendulum has really begun going faster and faster. And social pendulums, you know, they are hard to predict their velocity and timing, but their strength, uh, the mass of a massive movement is unmistakable when you can see through the lens of, of believing in your fellow man. That is that is a truism. And this pendulum is whoosh Hold on, y'all. Uh, hold on. It is raining candidates. It is raining activists. It is raining participants. Remember how we had the, the women's march that happened days after the inauguration? That, that doesn't just happen unless it is born from within with a just a desire that's so unified and so felt pervasively that people are drawn into the uh, streets effectively. But today... On Possibility Politics, the place where we feelize our way to a saner future, we're going to talk about the depth and breadth of what happened on Tuesday and what it means going into 2018, including some stories from local races that will get your vagus nerve quivering. I'll explain what a vagus nerve is. If you don't look at it, go look it up. V-A-G-U-S. Uh, we'll talk about how it was received by Republicans versus what it did to the disarray to the Democratic Party, plus the state of the Republican Tax Cut, 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 Cut Act. <laughs> Uh, we'll talk about Obamacare and or Trump care signups. We'll talk about which party is succeeding in creating the so-called uh, big tent. You've heard that expression before, which means a party involving lots of different ideas, but still moving forward with a common purpose. And the impeachment chatter is ramping up among televangelists. What? And here's the one thing that we're going to do that's going to challenge you. I'm going to play some reactions from a Trump faithful worshiper for historical context and to frankly expand your ability to, uh, as Elsa would say, let it go. All of that when we come back. Thank you for listening to Possibility Politics. 
This is Possibility Politics. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you, Juan Velasquez, for putting the show together, sitting next to me and uh, running it all. Otherwise, I would completely screw it up because I can barely talk and shoot gum. So um, this is the place where we uh, try to grow the knowing, as I like to say, and keep the minds blowing. Um, because this life is supposed to be fun. Politics is supposed to be fun. I jumped into politics because it is one of the ugliest places where our egos and our fears collide, where we really get a strong identity with an outcome. We really you know, get a high stake in how it's going to go, while simultaneously it is something that is so outside of us, which is one of the most terrifying things to our egos ego, by the way. The best way to get over your ego is to, is to, is to you know, look at your personal power and what you can do and what is actually happening to your life. Because if you look outside into the world and go, oh my gosh, all these things are terribly happening, they're going to happen to me, uh, that intangible fear, as I like to say, the unknown is the fertile ground of fear. And if you focus on all the unknowns, which is often politics, you get scared. And so I wanted to do this show so that we can kind of look at it, put some, turn some unknowns into knowns so it doesn't feel so scary as then we can enjoy it. Because like I said in the last episode, we talked about 1968 and uh, I had a conversation afterwards with some people who were alive during uh, 1968 and and had listened to the show. And they were saying, gosh, that's such a great reminder because at the time we thought it was all going to end. <laughs> we just thought it was freaking end of the world that it would just felt horrible. And in retrospect, he went, yeah, yeah, we got through it. We figured it out and it was terrible, but it was awesome. Um, and that's how we're going to look at this era. And it is happening right now. So especially, you know, if you're a Democrat, of course, you are celebrating today and the last couple days after Tuesday, because you finally, the one thing about politics is you kind of have to wait for an election to get an official scorecard. You can take polls, which as you saw, turned out to be, again, pretty iffy on Virginia and Georgia. They predicted most of it, but not by the margins that were seen. Uh, The Democratic, you know, (laughs) advantage was way more than expected. And the lesson there is that it's very difficult to gauge enthusiasm. It's also very difficult to gauge when a bunch of new people are involved in the process. And that's part of what uh, occurred is there was such a, a rush. Again, it was raining candidates. And what does that mean? Raining candidates. So uh, give me an example. In the House, Virginia House of Delegates, okay, they, they have, it's every two years, it's like many people's the state assemblies or, or what have you in different states. And these are the, the broader, there's a hundred of them in, in Virginia. And the current, before Tuesday, the makeup was 66 to 34 Republican. And a lot of the reason why that was is because of redistricting and gerrymandering, which we will get back to. Like, for instance, on the congressional level in Virginia, there are 11 seats, of 11 Congress seats, if I get that correct. And of those 11 seats, the number of votes in Virginia in the last election, which is obviously 2016, there were more, there were 16,000 more votes for Democratic candidates than Republican candidates at large in the state of Virginia. However, at the end of that, 16,000 more Democratic votes than Republican votes. The Republicans ended up with seven Republicans to four Democrats. So 51% for Democrats, and they end up with a seven to four victory. That's the power of gerrymandering. And that is something that also is changing because Virginia almost... The, the, the House of Delegates, it was almost taken over by the, the Democrats in this last wave. 66 to 34, and it's almost 50-50. It looks like it might be 51-49 Republicans. They're doing recounts because it literally came down to uh, some of the margins are 20, 30, 80 votes, 100, 100 votes. And so they're going to count them, count provisional ballots, and see what happens there. It may still be, but, but even if it isn't, uh, to see what the Democrats had to overcome— 
And here's the reigning candidate part. In the last occurrence, the last election for House of Delegates two years ago in Virginia, 29 Democrats ran. Just 29 Democrats. That's the only thing they thought they had any chance for. Out of 100. So there's not even close. They couldn't get a majority if they dreamed about it because it was so gerrymandered. It was so difficult to win. They thought only 29 could, could go for it. This last time in 90 seats, I mean 100 seats, 90 Democrats ran. And it looks like about 51 of them, 50 of them are going to win. Uh, 49 to 51. And Another thing that occurred, it, of the 15 seats that have been won in the Virginia House delegates uh, by the Democrats, of those 15, they were all males. As far as I can see from the pictures, and I don't mean to judge someone by the race, they appear to be all white males. There was one guy that looks a little Latino, uh, but it basically looked like they were all white males. And they were replaced by 11 Democratic women and, of course, some males too. But that was part of the wave. Women showed up and made it happen. Uh, especially in Virginia. It's, it was it, it, real stories of real people. Uh, one in particular, Wendy Goditis, who Goditis, who was, uh, she ran for District 10 in Loudoun County. This is in uh, Clark County, or I should say. Uh, she's part of Loudoun County, Frederick County, Clark County, I guess, if that matters to you if you're from Virginia. And I want to play her ad to give you a, a, a taste of uh, the average person who ran had never run before. She was new to politics. She just kind of said, uh, she saw what happened with Donald Trump and the Republicans and said, I want to get in. And she did. And, you know. I had a brother who struggled with alcoholism and PTSD for decades. I lost him in March, two weeks after I announced for this. It was devastating and hard to go on, but there are others like him. And I intend to make sure that they have more chances than he had. In Virginia, we're paying Medicaid taxes that go out of state. Republican-held House of Delegates voted down Medicaid expansion we four years in a row. We are turning away $6 million a day. We need this. We need it badly. If expanded, Medicaid would cover an additional 400,000 Virginians. That money could so help the people in our state who need it, but only if backed by a government who believes that people like my brother are worth saving yeah. and worth helping. And that's why I'm here. My name is Wendy Goditis, and I'm the Democratic nominee for delegate in Virginia House District 10. <laughs> So I get a little, I'm a big sap. I get teary-eyed. Uh, my vagus nerve goes off, V-A-G-U-S. What that is, is there's a giant nerve that's originally from like your lizard brain. It goes all the way from the back of your nostrils all the way down through your whole body. It's the one that when you start to get, you know, emotional, your nose starts to run or you get that, that's your vagus nerve going off. And um, when I saw that, I, I, it, it's so powerful on so many levels. Because again, she was running for something. She saw that 400,000 Virginians were being denied money for Medicaid, for health care, because the Virginia Republicans just hated Obamacare. They wanted it to fail so badly that even though, as she said, even though the state people in the state were having to pay Medicaid taxes, so you got to pay taxes, you got to contribute to it, the state was refusing the six, $6 million a day that they would have gotten back from the federal government just to say F you to Obama, basically, and the Democrats. So 
these folks ran on this. And this is why I knew, this is why I was right, <laughs> if you believe in humanity, because it becomes so painfully obvious that things fall of their own weight. You cannot convince people <laughs> that going without health care to make a point to your end, to your political enemies is worth it. They're not going to buy it. They're going, it will fall of its own weight. And it did in Virginia. The stories you probably heard about Danica Rome, right? The first transgender state representative. And you know that you've probably heard the irony of it. It was so amazing when I read that she was going against the guy who wrote the transgender bill, who, had, who bragged and proudly called himself a homophobe. And he had won for the last 23 years, 26 years. I mean, it was 26 something years he had been in that seat a republican and she took him out it's like this is what happens when you pull that pendulum so far out of what anything makes any sense to anybody uh, and there were stories of this um, jennifer carol foy who was this african-american woman who uh had twins in the she was she found out she was pregnant with twins after filing papers to run and then kept going. Her husband and she are canvassing. I mean, Danica Rome was one of these people that there were 70, there were 57,000 people in her district. And apparently she and her crew knocked on 75,000 doors. <laughs> this is the kind of activism that you cannot coerce, you cannot buy, you cannot pay people to do. It only comes from pulling a pendulum so far out of whack that everybody has to step in. They just can't <laughs> do anything else. Wendy Gaditis, her the previous guy that she beat by a, like a three or four point margin here, uh, was previously, he had won by a 25 point margin. That's how safe that was and how this person was just going to be around again and again and again. And it's the organizing. It's the groups that occurred. Uh, you probably heard for after uh, Hillary lost, uh, a bunch of Hillary supporters put together a group called Run for Something, <laughs> which is just the greatest name, right? Run for something, anything. And they started supporting anybody who wanted to run for, for progressive causes. Their candidates, several of their candidates won that were backed. Now, you've heard of Indivisible, uh, which is another one of these groups that popped up. And they, their backed candidates won. The R Revolution, which was the one that was kind of inspired by Bernie Sanders supporters. Same thing. And I love it, too, because... Obama and Holder, and whether you like them or not, uh, they actually are out in front of this. They didn't even, he skipped from Obama. He's got obviously OFA, Obama, I mean, uh, Organizing for America, and he does his organizations, which, which help support candidates. But he and Eric Holder are fighting to make redistricting uh, equal and fair. They're actually going to the next step in the metagame. And that is likely to occur <laughs> because when you start to take over legislatures because a party is so toxic that even when they've gerrymandered and they're only toxic, not because they're bad people, they're toxic because they have started, they have come to believe this idea that if you get rid of medical care, it will force people to go get a job and find a way to afford it. It's this strange idea then that has pervaded the Republican Party of late, not of classic, you know, Eisenhower Republicans. They were the exact opposite. But the party of late has decided that poor people is a, are a moral failing, and if you just prod them and, and, and whip them a little harder and make it a little tougher on them, then they will find a way to you know, be richer. 
And I just, I don't know where that's in the Bible. I don't remember Jesus saying, you know, beat people harder and they'll learn to be more, uh, work harder. I, I, you know, so I don't know where they get this. It's obviously a victimhood. They feel like they had to work so hard to get where they are. And so uh, they feel like a victim to their suffering and sacrifice. So they think that other people should probably suffer and sacrifice in order to, uh, I suppose, um, (laughs) make them work. So, but Virginia cannot be underestimated. You see, people say, oh, and of course, the, the right, we're going to talk about a minute and how they're looking at it and how they're kind of dismissing it. But uh, that's not the only place. All right. It happened up and down. The West Coast, all three West Coast states, Oregon, Washington and California, are all now completely Democratic. The, uh, the full majorities in all houses and governor and you know secretary of state, they went that way. Uh, Health care. Uh, Georgia lost its super majority of Republicans in, in their local state legislature. And these are just little races. We haven't gotten, obviously, to 2018, of course. And the, one of the big winners was health care. Because when you ask people in Virginia and, and, and New Jersey and such, uh, they, what was the what is their top uh, items? Number one was health care. Get ready for number two. Number two most popular item that brought people to the polls? Gun legislation. That's right. Gun legislation. What did we say a few days ago? This is on. People are done. They're sick of it. The pendulum is too far off. It doesn't make any sense anymore. And they're doing a massive repudiation of folks. And so much so on healthcare. Up in Maine, they uh, were the Governor LePage, the one who's a total Trumper, has been vetoing every attempt to expand Medicaid and get Maine's their money that they deserve. Uh, they put it on the ballot because he kept vetoing it. And they put it on the ballot and won by 20 points. And um, because the people in Maine said, nope, we should expand this money. We should expand Medicare, Medicaid to poor people to help the least among us. Remember that? And they did it. And they pushed for it. And that's things like in Brook Park, Ohio, there was a mayor there who switched his party. He was a Democrat, and he switched to, the, to be a Trump supporter. He lost to a union worker Democrat. <laughs> there were so many little races. In Oklahoma, races flipped. There are a, this is a absolute wave. And it's a wave because, duh, because you're not going to convince people that more suffering is better, that more money for corporations is better. It's, 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 you're just not in this time. There, may, there was a time in the 70s when unions were powerful and corrupt, and you could convince people that, that corporations probably needed a little break against the union oppression. You might have convinced it then, but you're not going to convince anybody of that now. It's just not going to happen. So when we come back, uh, I want to talk more about that. I want to talk about the um, which party is succeeding in creating the so-called uh, Big Tent impeachment and also a little bit about again this faithful worshiper of trump so you can listen to it and put it in your head hopefully it won't explode but we'll learn something from it so we always do right here on possibility politics this is possibility politics the independent state of mind where we look at this gorgeous country and all its complicated glory and love her exactly the way she is I'm Jeff Stein. Thank Juan Velasquez for uh, producing the show and Executive Brian for making it grow. Um, so the, uh, to, the Virginia election was also significant in a few other ways. One of them is that it was a big winner, as they say, for, for voting rights. Governor Terry McAuliffe, who was the one, the current governor of Virginia, it wasn't a pickup. It was, Virginia was, uh, you know, uh, Democratic before. Same thing with Jersey. You know, Jersey won, and Jersey was a Demo- was it was on well, Jersey was it was a pickup, I should say, because it was Chris Christie who had an approval rating lowest ever in governor history. I think of 14, 15 percent. Um, so that wasn't uh, too hard of a win, but it was a much bigger one, as you know. The polls were supposedly closer. 
And uh, Donald Trump even did robocalls and things in order to try to push Ed Gillespie over the edge. But one of the things that Terry McAuliffe did is he restored voting rights to 168,000 ex-felons over the past year and a half while he was governor by taking away the if you ever had a felony, you can't ever vote law that some typically southern states like to do this one. Uh, and, And you're trying to say, well, I'd like to say it wasn't racial, but... When people of color are the people most likely to have a felony and you decide that that's uh, a particular thing that bothers you. And again, race race aside, I don't understand why if someone has paid their debt to society, why wouldn't you want them back in the circumstance, right? I mean, it's after they've paid their file and and they're back, you know, put their time in prison, shouldn't you want them to, (laughs) to be involved? And so... Uh, Virginia, too. This is the thing. Republican gerrymandering, as you know, I talked about that a second ago. And if the, but if they take Democrats get control, they could repeal things. Like there's a state voter ID law in Virginia, which requires a driver's license or some sort of government issued photo ID to cast a ballot. And that, of course, is just, you know, to try to restrict people from voting. And there's this great moment. Uh, one of these uh, bloggers was out in front of a polling station in uh, in Virginia and caught this lady, uh, Brianna Ross. She's the first time she ever voted in an election uh, and since she had a felony for stealing diapers for her kid at age 19. She got a felony for stealing diapers at age 19 and has never voted. I am Brianna Ross, and today was my very first time voting. I remember way back in 1993 when the judge told me, you can't ever vote. I didn't know what that meant, but it made me feel empty. It made me feel unimportant. Yeah. But I voted today. I mean, how could you call yourself a patriot and not want people to be excited about exercising their rights as a citizen to vote? What is more sacred? We always say what is more sacred. What is more sacred than that? You know? And then... (laughs) The reaction came from the elections on Tuesday because it was swift and scary. And of course, the Democrats got very excited and talks of disunity faded much better. <laughs> you know, there was all this controversy over Donna Brazil and, and Hillary and the fighting. Although you will find that other that in Russian inflation of those stories on social media and uh, fairly obsessive coverage on Drudge and Fox News and Breitbart, it's not really that big of a deal elsewhere, you know, and that's fine. It's a big a deal or not a big a deal because the Democratic Party is definitely uh, going through its uh, reshuffling, <laughs> regrouping. But what is going to help a lot? And that leads us to this question of which party is succeeding in creating the, you know, so-called big tent and uh, on the Democratic side, it seems to be going well, because what is a big tent? Let me give you an example of a big tent, meaning that you could be in the same general direction, same typical vision, but not in particular. It's like if I talk to my progressive Democratic friends, they will complain about every Democrat who isn't going for single payer health care. But if your big tent on the Democratic side includes people that want single payer and people who want expanded Obamacare, I think you're in the same tent as opposed to. The Republican platform, which is remove all uh, government assistance or help from health care. It is not a right. It is not a privilege. It is just a privilege. And if you can afford it, you got to go get it in the open market. 
and it's all free markets. So that would not fit into those tents. Those three things cannot be in the same in the same tent, but two of them can. <laughs> Even two of them, in theory, on the could be on the right. The right could say, well, let's embrace Romney Care slash Obamacare, and then also uh, make sure that we keep it a privatized circumstance. But there's the difference. On the right, the tent is shrinking because they're saying, nope, 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 we won't even expand Medicaid. And you saw what happened yesterday on Tuesday when they refused to, you know, bring in people who could are eligible for health care to just give it to them. Whereas the other side is doing it, so the tent seems to be working well. You know, especially you know if you're if you're if you're mad that someone isn't for single payer, but they agree well, on the Democratic side, but they agree with you on minimum wage, on women's rights, equality, climate change. Any of those, you know, you should be able to look at the tent and go, okay. The other one they struggle with, of course, is abortion. Can you have some that are pro-life and some that are pro-choice? I give you the same thing. If your candidate is kind of pro-life and wants to ban abortion up until, you know, the uh, wants to ban abortion in the last trimester, for instance, and that person you want to bring in your tent, while they simultaneously also support, you know, the reduction of fossil fuels and, again, women's equality, transgender rights, et cetera, et cetera, you got to get over it. You got to chill out because that does not seem to be happening on the right. And uh, allow me to play you David Jolly. You've probably seen him if you watch MSNBC because he kind of become a regular contributor. An unabashed, um, you know, a Republican from Florida who no longer congressman because of this. He's the party lost him. And he's here's how he described what occurred on uh, Tuesday. This is what a wave feels like. And Democrats won tonight because Donald Trump is president. And that's what Republicans need to reconcile with. Democrats won tonight because the Republican Party has accommodated these white nationalist themes. They've accommodated a president who has bragged about sexual assault. They've accommodated a president who has accommodated, uh, frankly, firearm policy that does not address the concerns of a nation and is pushing a tax bill that favors the rich and not Main Street. And what this means for Republicans is without a change of course, which I think we won't see one, we will see a divided government come January of 2019. This is the beginning of a wave where Republic, or where Democrats begin to take over uh, the first branch of government, and that being the legislature. And again, before you think this is a Democrat versus a Republican thing, it really kind of isn't. And here's why I say that. The Democratic Party is basically the alternative to what a majority now are seeing as being the wrong direction. And so the Democratic Party, as I told you, it's reigning candidates. So it has been this inflow of new progressive candidates. It's not the old Democratic Party. I would not be surprised that when the Democrats take over in, in 2019, after the 2018 elections, I don't think Nancy Pelosi is going to be Speaker of the House my suspicion is there will be so many new Democrats, as well as the large swath of currently congressional Democrats, who will say, no, we need new blood. We need a representative that's more progressive. Uh, or she'll have to make a really good pitch to these folks because they're, they're not going to buy it. <laughs> so, but on the right, David Jolly is trying to sound the alarm and tell these folks that, hey, you guys... Uh, this is a dead end scenario and you got to recognize it, but it's not happening. So watching Fox News on the night of the election, they talked about it a little bit. Uh, the spin came real fast. They tried to play it down, say, oh, it's New Jersey. And they tried to suddenly turn Virginia into a blue state. Ah, oh, it's a blue state. <laughs> no, it isn't. Uh, and it's certainly not gerrymandered to be one. Uh, but they tried to play it down, first of all, and just say it didn't happen. And then the next morning, 
I went, I do my usual scan of all the uh, news uh, services. And on Fox News, there was nothing. There was North Korea. There was the Donna Brazil, Hillary Clinton spat. Uh, there was stuff about uh, the tax cuts and the economy and, uh, you know, the um, health care. But nothing about the Democratic shellacking that they just gave to the Republican Party. That was absent. They're hiding. And that, of course, will deprive their viewers of any growth. It will make their tribalism even thicker which will make them refuse to accept that Trump is the problem, which is why folks like David Jolly are saying, you guys can't let him, even if you keep him in office, you've got to be a check on his recklessness, just to put it nicely. You have to be a check on his recklessness, and if you are not, you will lose elections because they will replace you with somebody who will be a check on the recklessness. But they will not get to that liar's lens as I tell you about, you know, the liar's lens, which is once you decide somebody's a liar, everything you see they say from that moment forward is seen through that lens and they will always be a liar. So when we come back, um, I, I want to get into the, the, the Sean Hannity. That is the faithful Trump follower who has been enjoying the one year anniversary. What he said, <laughs> get ready. It's all here on Possibility Politics. This is Jeff's World, the place where we look at this great experiment called America and hopefully leave it better than we found it. The uh, the Boy Scout rule, right? I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you, Juan Velasquez, for the show together. Uh, another thing that came up was impeachment. And it came up in an odd place, a very odd place. First of all, allow me to play the longer version of the Tom Steyer ad that you've probably seen. It's like a 15-second version going around. But uh, here's the longer version that has that even got on Fox News. But then the Fox News viewers went so crazy, they decided it wasn't worth taking Tom Steyer's money. He's brought us to the brink of nuclear war, obstructed justice at the FBI, and in direct violation of the Constitution. He's taken money from foreign governments and threatened to shut down news organizations that report the truth. If that isn't a case for impeaching and removing a dangerous president, then what has our government become? I'm Tom Steyer. And like you, I'm a citizen who knows it's up to us to do something. It's why I'm funding this effort to raise our voices together and demand that elected officials take a stand on impeachment. A Republican Congress once impeached a president for far less. Yeah. Yet today, people in Congress and his own administration know that this president is a clear and present danger who's mentally unstable and armed with nuclear weapons. <laughs> and they do nothing. Join us. And tell your member of Congress that they have a moral responsibility to stop doing what's political and start doing what's right. Yeah, remember, depends on it. Uh, they impeached uh, Bill Clinton in the House, not the Senate, of course. He wasn't at a full impeachment for lying about an affair, which he did and which, great. He was, you know, he should have been censured for sure. Uh, impeached seems strong, which is why the Senate didn't impeach him. Only the House did. But they did it for that reason. And now you've got a situation, one year anniversary of the Trump election, right, where his campaign chairman is on $10 million bond wearing an ankle bracelet, uh, as are several other, you know, the Papadopoulos and the Rick Gates, right? He's spent millions of dollars in legal fees for he and his family. Unfortunately, the other members of the, of the White House have had to foot the bill themselves. Isn't that nice? And there have been 29 resignations from Congress of <laughs> Republicans who say, there's no way I'm going to be able to win this. And why are they holding it all together? Tax cuts, the Tax Cut 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 Act, <laughs> as Donald Trump wanted to call it. 
And that is not going to work. If I have time, I will get to that because that is some intense stuff. But the other part of the impeachment, talking about it by evangelicals. Who'd ever thought, right? Well, here's Jim Baker. Remember Jim Baker? Good old TL evangelist. Look what he has to say. Trump is not crazy. No, no. They want him to be crazy because they want to impeach him. There's nothing they can impeach him over because this thing with the collusion with Russia, they can't prove. But they want to say this man's crazy. And they're trying to get doctors to say the president's crazy. I'll tell you what, if they they go through with that, there will be a riot in the United States of America. And you're going to find little old ladies rioting. You're going to find the church people out rioting. Because they're not going to take it anymore. This is stupid and insanity what's going on in our country right now. Well, you got that part of it right, Jim Baker. It is stupid. It is insanity. And you say, Jeff, well, that doesn't seem like an argument for impeachment. Actually, it is. And this is the beauty of when you can recognize things for what they really are. Meaning that... um, if you are focused, let me just like, if you run around saying, I don't want to be late, I don't want to be late, I can't be late, I can't be late, you're going to be late. <laughs> you can't get that out of your head and out of your consciousness if that's what you're afraid of, right? And so this Jim Baker and others are like that. They're just like, he's trying to make him seem like he's crazy. Every time you say Donald Trump is crazy, you reinforce that idea in people's head. The only way to fix that is to say, Donald Trump is like Jesus. I love Donald Trump because he's just like Jesus. But you can't say that. Because then you have to defend that and prove that. And so instead you say, he's not crazy. His his detractors, his persecutors are not. But again, if you are a lot of, uh, uh, this is disrespectful, I suppose, but a lot of the, uh, the Christians that are in this vein, the vast majority of Christians are Christians and doing the love of God and Jesus and helping fellow man and lifting those least among us. But there are those who uh, focus on their persecution like a Jim Baker. And so they're preoccupied with a lens of persecution. They just see, wow, we're just, you know, we're being attacked and they're going to riot over impeachment. And every time you mention impeachment, what are you doing? You're keeping the topic on impeachment. You're asking people, oh, is it, should we, should we, I don't know. Is he crazy? Is he crazy? Should he be impeached? (laughs) Well, keep asking that question. You're doing the work of Tom Steyer. Tom Steyer could never do to your followers Uh, through an ad, through an argument, what you just did by having them focus on the fear that his craziness will result in his removal. And then his craziness will result in his removal, right? Okay, so Sean Hannity. Ah, God bless him. I don't usually play him on the show. (laughs) <laughs> because it's he is the Trump follower. He is obviously totally cool with the white nationalism, totally cool with the sexual assault. Clearly, he's lived in a, he worked in an environment known as Fox News, which had pervasive bullying and sexual assault to the tune of $30, $40 million settlements, right? So he's okay with all that. But this was the one-year anniversary of the Trump election, so he was really enjoying himself. And I want to play this and then talk about it on the other side. You're going to dig it. They all thought it was impossible for you to elect Donald Trump. You may remember this. Donald Trump has been saying that he will run for president as a Republican, which is surprising since I just assumed he was running as a joke. Do it. Do it. Look look at me. Do it. I will personally write you a campaign check now on behalf of this country, which does not want you to be president, but which badly wants you to run. This man has got some uh, momentum, and uh, we better be ready for the fact that he might be leading the Republican ticket next. <laughs> I know you don't believe that, but I want to go on. <laughs> Sorry to laugh. Which Republican candidate has the best chance of winning the general election? 
of the declared ones right Ann now, Coulter. Donald Trump. And they laugh, right? And they're cracking up. Mr. Trump, to answer your call for political honesty, I just want to say you're not going to be president, all right? It's been fun. Now, of course, you see Hannity is emphasizing to his viewers that, see, you were right and they were wrong. But it actually, again, it's like saying, don't think of impeachment. When you draw an emphasis of what a laughingstock Donald Trump was before he was elected, you only emphasize that he might still be a laughingstock now. If Sean Hannity really wanted to sell Donald Trump, he should have played the clips of all the brilliant things he said instead of the uh, trying to say, I told you so to the doubters, because then it just re-emphasizes the doubters. Oh, but it didn't end there. Keep going, Sean. Pennsylvania for Donald Trump. This means that Donald he played Trump the, uh, will be the winning moment. The 45th president of the United and States. And then the depression. Ah, uh, nothing better. Where were you than hearing those swing states one after another call for President Trump that night? Now the left, liberals, members of the abusively biased press in this country. You all look like idiots because <laughs> you all predicted Donald Trump never stood a chance. And then after he won, you became hysterical. Let's take a look. America is crying tonight. I'm not sure how much of America, but a very, very significant portion. And I mean literally crying. Yeah. This is a sadness. It is a, a mourning moment for, for those people. Uh, and it is, it is a moment filled with fear, fear. filled with fear. Out to face some serious crises. And so, I mean, buckle up. Your country needs you. It's a pretty extraordinary thing to say. Uh, if you have a son in the Marine Corps and that you don't trust the commander in chief, the yeah. people in the military defend the Constitution. This was a white lash. This was a white lash Remember against that? a changing country. It was a white lash against a black president in part. It's funny, but it's also pathetic. And it shows you <laughs> just how abusively biased and corrupt and dishonest the media in this country really is. The media, they couldn't understand why Donald Trump won, why he was victorious that night. <laughs> now, the night of election night, it's usually a night off for me, but I was encouraged by my boss at the time to call in and join my Fox News colleagues to explain why he won. Look, he's got to show me. I love this. He's got to take a moment and show. I know, me, 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 me. Okay, I love This was election night one year ago tonight. Okay. To me, this was predictable. But on the other hand, this is a, a modern-day political miracle you're witnessing before your eyes right now. <laughs> and that is to go up against everybody and all the pundits and all the pollsters and all the prognosticators out there and defy all the odds. And it's the American people that have said enough is enough. They're tired of the corruption, the cesspool, draining the swamp. All of these things were resonating. You know, when you look at a state like Wisconsin, what are they saying? They want their jobs back. They want the labor participation rate to be lower. Uh, in other words, more people having jobs. Uh, they want America to be energy independent. They're tired of a horrible educational system. They're tired of Obamacare rates going through the roof. This is not complicated. What's happening now is not working. And these guys and Donald Trump has gone out there and he outworked Hillary Clinton and he put forward a much better agenda and America said enough is enough with failed policies. Yeah. And he's right about that uh, in terms of identifying the level of, of, of frustration and enough is enough uh, and the woundedness of American voters and wanting to do something about it. But as far as the other part, <laughs> you know, 
first of all, it's a political miracle. He went against all those people and he won. That, again, only shows your persecution and rejection focus. You're so tired of being persecuted and rejected and hated that now we finally, our guy who's also persecuted, rejected, and hated wins. But it just reinforces the point. And he says, though, they look like idiots. They became hysterical. Turns out they were right. Who was right about that? Those who recognized the fear, the disgust, the anger, and saw that it was going to be a call to action? Uh, or Sean Hannity who said, see, it's right. This is the way the country is. Everybody's moving this way. No. When, when, when somebody said, your country needs you on that uh, panel of folks who were reacting, they recognized the fear and the disgust and the anger, and they saw it as a call to action. Sean Hannity continues on because he's got to give some warnings to Republicans, right? This is good. Now, before we move on, I do want to issue a stern warning tonight to congressional Republicans, especially you spineless ones in the Senate. <laughs> if you don't start passing and the president's agenda, the things that you promised one year from tonight, you are going to face the consequences of the 2018 midterms. You know what? Republicans, the American people are sick of you making all kinds of promises for the past eight plus years and failing miserably to keep them. You break your promises, you're going to pay at the polls. And by the way, it's not going to be Donald Trump's fault. See, it's not going to be Donald Trump's fault. He upped the war between Republicans who are for Donald Trump and everything he stands, no matter what, and under all costs, and Republicans who say, well, wait a minute, I don't know if we can do that many tax cuts. Wait a minute, I don't know if we can destroy Obamacare. Wait a minute, I don't know, we got to give somebody an alternative. That's the war that's going on. So in the Big Tent study, uh, Hannity just pointed out that the this is only going to cause more Republican implosion because they went he went right back to persecution, right? Right back to persecution. Oh, but let's round this out. How about maybe we should get a little Steve Bannon in here. He was on Sean Hannity last night. Let me ask you about yesterday, because you have been very outspoken. You're tired of weak Republicans. But more importantly, they're trying to say last night was a referendum on Donald Trump. (laughs) True or false? Well, it's definitely false. I think what what we had as an establishment uh, candidate, Ed Gillespie, won a primary, very hard-fought primary versus Corey Stewart. And then really didn't try to embrace President Trump or, or really the Trump program uh, until very late. We just kind of, you know, basically talked about some of the issues, uh, which I thought, you know, he should try to do more of. You know, he never invited President Trump. I think he had President Bush campaigned with him, Marco Rubio, Condi Rice. But he didn't invite uh, President Trump. He really didn't invite Corey Stewart, who really is the titular head of the Trump movement in Virginia. So I think there are a lot of things that Ed Gillespie could have done, and I think in hindsight, he wishes he had done to generate more enthusiasm out there among the Trump faithful to kind of turn out. And I think the, the race in Virginia, look, we lost by five points. I, you know, I'm a Virginian, and I never had a lot of confidence. It was never in uh, our battle plan that we were going to win Virginia. You lost by nine points, uh, by the way. I thought even with Donald Trump at the head of the ticket, we would get to win one or two points. We lost it by five points. Nine. I mean, Virginia, because of Northern Virginia, is really not a purple state anymore. It's, it's a blue state. Oh, it's blue state. When Donald Trump <laughs> uh, wins 304 electoral votes and wins states like Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Iowa, and comes within one point of Minnesota, when he loses Virginia by five points, it, it shows you how what blue you, it is. So, uh, yeah. What do you so think is think the revelation? Gillespie, Gillespie needed to, to, to embrace Trump uh, much more. Now we know that the fix was... Yeah, he needed to embrace Trump even more. That was the answer. They say it was not about Trump. By the way, they did do an exit poll in Virginia. 17% of people said they voted, their vote was a, a, a vote for in support of Trump. 34% it was a vote against Trump. That's two to one. And then the other 49% said not a factor. They were voting for health care and guns. 
Healthcare and guns. And yes, you're right. You're right, Steve Bannon. Virginia is a blue state. You made it that way. <laughs> you guys just made it that way. And all the exit polls show that. Those places where Donald Trump did okay, he didn't do he got low turnout, and the places where Hillary did well, it was ten times a turnout. This is working, you guys. This is working. Not for Democrats or Republicans in particular. It's working because people are now starting to be more for something instead of against something. And I thank you for joining me on this journey. We'll do this again in a couple of days. This has been Possibility Politics. I'm Jeff Stein. This has been Possibility Politics with Jeff Stein. The social, political, pop cultural discussion show that looks at life through the rose-colored eyes of the almost criminally optimistic Jeff Stein. 